Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. Those are the words spoken by Judge Edward Cowart in 1979 as he sentenced Ted Bundy to death for the murders of two Florida sorority girls. It's also the title of Joe Berlinger's new film starring Zac Efron and Lily Collins, which just debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. I'm Amanda Knox, and I'm here in Park City, Utah to record this special episode of The Truth About True Crime, the podcast where I explore the dark corners, dig into the unresolved questions, and get personal with the humans at the heart of Sundance true crime documentaries and films. I sat down with director Joe Berlinger, who, with this film and his just-released documentary series on Netflix, Conversations with a Killer, has arguably spent more time in Bundy's head than any sane person ought to. Extremely Wicked is a dark and fast-paced film that is uncomfortably fun at times, especially when it has you rooting for its charming, inscrutable, and, Berlinger goes out of his way to help you forget, murderous protagonist. Berlinger traces our current interest in true crime to the big bang of the Bundy trial, the first to be nationally televised, sparking this idea of murder as entertainment. That pings me pretty hard, having been at the center of a tragedy that got treated as tabloid fodder. In most filmic portrayals of Bundy, you see this tendency to think of Bundy as having a singular true self, the psychopath, making everything else about him, the witty, affable lawyer, the lover, a facade. Extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile doesn't present him that way, despite the title. Berlinger's film knows that we've seen the Bundy as monster portrait a thousand times, and so it asks us to see that other side of him, the charming side that displayed love for his girlfriend, as an authentic part of him too. The film asks us to consider that if Bundy was Mr. Hyde, he may have also been Dr. Jekyll. Berlinger says he's not trying to humanize Ted Bundy, but to show us that even the people who commit the most heinous acts are also three-dimensional humans. And his commitment to that three-dimensional view of his subjects is what most excited me about sitting down to chat with him. That, and the fact that he made Paradise Lost about the wrongful conviction of my friend Damien Eccles and the West Memphis Three. So, without further ado, Here's my interview with Joe Berlinger for this special episode of The Truth About True Crime. If you enjoy, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Well, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's such an honor and thrill uh, to meet you in person. I've followed your case and loved the documentary and having worked with uh, the West Memphis Three and making three films about 
wrongful conviction. Uh, yeah. I think we're kindred spirits. Indeed. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm thrilled to meet you because you're, you know, one of the fathers of wrongful conviction documentaries. And I think that you do so much to raise awareness. And now it's become a genre. Yeah. And it's become popular. Yeah. And which worries me as much as I think is exciting because I think media in general has become so siloed. We all live in our own little siloed world of what we create and what we watch. And on the one hand, it's never been a better time for content creation because there's so many platforms and so many opportunities and nonfiction has never been more popular. But along with that, there's one story after the other after the other and people get like kind of... Uh, immune to the next wrongful conviction story. Mm -hmm. You know, people are consuming this stuff as entertainment. On the other hand, the more light we can shine on this problem, which, you know, the U.S. criminal justice system is so deeply flawed. Uh, experts believe that 5% of people in prison are potentially wrongfully convicted or so over-sentenced that they deserve to be out. And we have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population, you know, more than Russia and China combined. And I think people need to look at that. And Amen, that, brother. That, that, mean, that, means, that means 2 million people a day are in prison in this country, and if 5% of them are potentially don't deserve to be there, that's like 100,000 people, you know? So can't have enough film and media and advocacy for those people. So is that why you decide to, like, shake things up by <laughs> telling the story of a really guilty person? Uh, well, in many ways, yes, actually. It's because of the structure of the script. We're seeing the Bundy experience through the eyes of the one person he didn't kill who believed in him for a long time mm -hmm. as a way of understanding how sociopaths can be so believable and sincere and therefore how you can become a victim to that kind of psychopath. And it, it actually grows out of my wrongful conviction work in a funny way because in addition to the West Memphis Three, you know, I've focused on a number of cases like Richard Glossop in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. who the state of Oklahoma has tried to kill three times. Uh, and there have been last-minute stays. One time, you know, the last time, the, and the reason there's still an indefinite stay on executions is they literally had the lethal injection portal in his arm. Ugh. And the appointed killing time was 3 o'clock, and it's 5 past 3, and everybody on the outside, all those families and supporters, think he's dead. Um, but what's going on inside is that they're arguing over whether or not they should kill him because they have the wrong cocktail of drugs for the lethal injection. And finally, the the warden decided, okay, we have to pull the plug and not do this. So, And he's innocent. And only because of this toxic chemical mix-up was he spared. Wow. Um, but in all of these cases where I've... Um, and I have a show called Wrong Man on Stars that's entering its second season where we investigate cases of wrongful conviction. And in all of these instances, I always have this moment of... I wouldn't quite call it panic, but, you know... In those early days, I have to look at somebody in the eye and have a conversation and evaluate their credibility. But there's that moment where before you do the investigation and the deep dive you have to do to do these kinds of films, you know, I've lied awake many a night in my hotel room because you hear the other side and sometimes the other side is so persuasive but wrong yeah. that I've had these moments of panic. Like, what if this person who's claiming to be innocent is actually just charismatically fooling me, you know? Mm. And so I, that idea I wanted to play with in this film, not for some gratuitous reason, but really to do a portrait of how a psychopath can operate, because that was Bundy's heritage. But obviously a wrongfully convicted person such as yourself <laughs> is someone who is uh, 
innocent, but everyone thinks is guilty. But Bundy was the antithesis of that. He was somebody who was guilty of the most horrendous acts one could do to another human being. Yeah. But everyone thought he was innocent because he was charming, because he was white, because he was upwardly mobile, because he told good jokes, mm -hmm. you know, and people just looked the other way. And I just find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and I think that in Extremely Wicked, you the thing that struck me most was how successful you were at getting me to not only side with like Liz, who cared about Ted and, and believed in him for a long time, but also Ted himself. Yeah. The way that you told his story, you also saw it through his eyes. And he made some, you know, incredibly compelling arguments in his own defense in yeah. the end, yeah. like calling out prosecutorial tunnel vision, calling out media bias, calling out things that I, as a wrongfully convicted person, go, yeah, but... God, you're saying I'm like you're ruining it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the film is the film. The film rides a very fine line, and you know, some people have been concerned that we're glorifying Bundy. But I think if you watch the last twenty minutes of the film, we're certainly not glorifying the guy. But you have to understand how somebody like that operates because he's not alone. As Bundy himself says, murderers don't come out of the shadows with long fangs dripping blood off their chin, which means they're easily identifiable. You know, right. people who do evil, we want to think they're two-dimensional monsters, that they're social outcasts that you can spot a mile away. Mm -hmm. But in my experience in covering real crime for the last 25 years, the people who do the worst in life, and this is my just general philosophy, the people who do the worst are often those who you least expect and who you know and who are close to you, whether it's a priest who commits pedophilia, which mm -hmm. is just the most horrendous violation of every moral standard and then they hold mass the next day. Mm. Uh, whether it's a corporate CEO of a polluting industry who goes to bed at night knowing he's killing tens of thousands of people or a corporate CEO of the pharmaceutical companies that shoved Oxycontin down a generation's mouth while repressing research that it was addictive. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure those guys have loving, warm families and lots a wide circle of friends, but that's compartmentalized evil, in my opinion. And, yeah. and, and on the worst end of the spectrum is a guy like Bundy, who has a need for normalcy. That's why he had a relationship, but he's capable of the most horrendous evil. And as a father of daughters around the Bundy prototypical age, mm. the message that people really need to earn your trust and that sometimes the people closest to you are the ones who are going to violate that trust, uh, that's a lesson that I don't think can be learned enough. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because Ted used to be a household name and everyone knew what being careful and not trusting someone who says he's a police officer or who says he needs help. Like, that used to be a, a household conversation. And in 2019, it's like you're resurrecting that conversation right. and bringing to light not just the aspects of his crimes, but the, the almost exonerating aspects of his personality, yeah. which, you know, are... It's almost like you're resurrecting his humanity. Right. And I wonder, like, why is that important? Well, I wouldn't say I'm resurrecting his humanity from a restoration of his image or anything like that. He's a guy who did horrible things, no question. I mean, the worst things you could do to a human being. And then beyond that, you know, after, which, you know, stuff you don't even want to talk about. Yeah. Um, so it's not like I'm restoring his humanity, but rather I want people to see and understand that people who do evil 
are three-dimensional human beings capable of positive things as well as negative things, not because we want to give him a pass. He deserves, I mean, I'm virulently anti-death penalty, so I don't want to say he deserved the death penalty from the perspective that I, I hate the death penalty because Damien Eccles was almost killed and many yep. other people, you know, DNA has exonerated 20 people on death row who would have been killed. You know, so I'm, you know, uh, there can't be a death penalty because the criminal justice system, as you well know, is so deeply flawed that, you know, killing one innocent person means you can't have the death penalty for anybody. Yep. So it's, it's a complicated issue. But Bundy got what he deserved in terms of being convicted. I would have preferred he would, you know, spent his life in prison as opposed to being executed because A, they made a media circus around the execution, mm -hmm. and B, I, I'm so against the death penalty. You know, he got what he deserved mm -hmm. with all those caveats I just said. Yep. And the movie shows he got what he deserved, and I certainly don't want to say there's another side to Bundy, so let's reconsider the crimes or mm -hmm. anything like that. But I think it's important for people to understand that killers and people who do bad and the people you most need to watch out for are people who could be sitting right next to you. They're three-dimensional human beings. I think Bundy was capable of love. That's why he didn't kill her. A lot of people say, well, you know, a psychopath can't love. You know, then you have to get into what's the definition of love. But he craved a sense of normalcy. But he was also diabolical and horrible and, and your worst nightmare. So I'm not trying to rehabilitate his image. I'm trying to make people understand that those who do evil aren't some weird two-dimensional monster subset of society. They are people amongst us. And I think... You know, there's, there's one spectrum of sociopathic behavior, in my opinion. And on the lightest end of it is we've all had a boss who just is mean to you and treats you like shit and does whatever they want to do for no other reason than they get off on it. We've all been in, a, in that situation. That's psychopathic. Why would you treat somebody horribly like that while pretending to your superiors that you're just a wonderful employee? Yeah. That's psychopathic behavior. The aforementioned priest who commits pedophilia, that's psychopathic behavior. Corporate CEOs who go to bed at night knowing they're killing... Not, look, there's many great corporations. I'm being very specific. <laughs> polluting industries who deny climate change and repress the research. And, you know, the pharmaceutical thing, having done a couple of deep dives into that world, what pharmaceutical companies did to repress the research. And, you know, in an age when, you know, when I was a kid, I, if I had an injury, I'd be given Tylenol. And now there was a whole generation who were given addictive drugs and people became drug addicts. And mm -hmm. more people are dying from heroin overdoses, which comes directly out of the Oxycontin crisis, each year than died in Vietnam. Those CEOs who peddled that stuff should be held accountable. That's psychopathic behavior. They knew it. And of course, serial killing. So the whole point is to understand that evil exists and evil is committed by your fellow three-dimensional human being. Yeah. That's what I was trying to, you know... Yeah, as, as someone who's like lived for years locked up with people who have committed terrible crimes, um, I, I often get surprised by how often I, I go through the world and it seems like everyone is seems to look at a human being and if they've done a crime, it's like automatically they become a criminal, they become a monster. We look at them through that lens and limit them to that. Yeah. Whereas like everyone's a multifaceted yeah. person, including the people who commit the most exactly. egregious acts. I mean, like you, I mean, Damien Eccles, we went down and everyone thought that they were guilty and the press was just feeding that daily newspaper headline and nightly news story about what these monstrous kids, without doing any digging or research or anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stuff we found wasn't even that hard to find. I mean, it's just we were the only ones doing the research. Yeah, yeah, so. totally.
One thing that I find really fascinating about the way that you told this story in Extremely Wicked is you seem to be putting us in the perspective of all those people who we look back on now and say, why were they in the Ted Bundy fan club? Right. Like you, there are some hijinks in this film that the way that you've chosen the soundtrack for it and the cuts for it, like we're almost like on the side going, run, Ted, run. Exactly. <laughs> like go, Ted, go. And yeah. then you're like, wait a second, he just goes and kills other people. Yeah. Why, why do I feel this way? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that you hit the nail on the head. And I think for some, th thankfully not all, and we had amazing screenings here and a standing ovation and all that. So I know the film generally works for most people. And some people have said, well, aren't you glorifying him by that? And I say, no, we're not glorifying him at all because he gets his due at the end of the film. He's alone and isolated. I don't want to give the ending away, but, you know, it's very powerful. There's um, a deep betrayal that you as an audience feel in the end of this film. Exactly. People have said, and the marketing material said, oh, it's through Liz's POV. It's not quite Liz's POV. Mm -hmm. It's I'm trying to give the audience the experience of what it's like to be a Liz Klepfer. Mm -hmm. When he's jumping out the window and you're rooting for their relationship, I want you to feel that way because I want you to feel how Liz must have felt when she puts the pieces together and finally confronts him. And she intellectually knows that he's guilty, but emotionally she hasn't quite connected the dots yet. Right. And so, you know, what you have told me is what a number of people have told me after watching the film. It's like, oh my God, I felt like I wanted their relationship to succeed. And at the end of the film, I felt horrible and guilty for having invested any positive emotion into him and that relationship. But that's precisely the point because that's how these people operate. Yeah. And that's how you become a victim to this type of behavior. Although I will say that I also in the film ended up getting a crush on Haley Joel Osment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. I'm always rooting for the good guy. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. I kind of wanted a little more of him, I'm going to say. A movie is a million choices, and you know uh, there could have been more of Haley for sure, but... But you had Zach. And we had Zach, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were casting Zach, what about him screamed Ted Bundy to you? Well, um, he was my first choice. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was thrilled he said yes. And he's a terrific actor who hasn't been given a chance to show his full range. And he was excited to show his full range. Um Basically, I was sent the script. I said I loved it. My agent at CAA then brought up the script at an agent's meeting uh, at CAA, and Zach's agent immediately said, oh, Zach is looking to do something different. You know, he's tired of the Bay Watches and that type of thing. He wants to do... <laughs> Poor Zach. <laughs> exactly. No, no, I get it, I get yeah, it. No, he, he, he wants to do something needy. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, he got paid a lot of money on Baywatch, and this is a movie where he got paid practically nothing. And the Good fact, for him. And the fact that he was willing to do a film where he got paid nothing and wanted to do something different, that counted a lot. Yeah. And, you know, you have to think, people in the feature business will know this, that when my agent said to me, do you want Zach to read the script? It's not a light decision because somebody at that level, it's called a reading offer. So if you agree to let him read the script, you're obligated to cast him. Oh, really? That's the way it works with somebody at his level. So when my agent said, do you want Zach to read the script? You know, I, I actually didn't hesitate, I immediately recognized the brilliance of that idea because I think he's a terrific actor. 
the fact that he was wanting to do the film and knew what the budget was, he, you know, it was obvious that he wasn't going to get paid a lot of money and he was willing to do this. And it also, just taking this role on meant he was willing to challenge and put a pin prick in his teen heartthrob image. Yeah. And for me, that was a fascinating approach because as a documentarian, you know, you always want to kind of sink your teeth into some real thing to play with. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of playing with one of America's biggest heartthrobs for a certain age range of the population, mm -hmm. for him to want to do that and for me to be able to play with that idea um, just kind of gave me a little documentary reality crutch to rely on, sure. uh, which I thought was, was good. But uh, if this was a David Fincher-style film of an escalating body count and we see the crimes and by the end of the movie, the police have put the pieces together and we arrest, you know, Buffalo Bill or whomever, mm -hmm. uh, he would have been not my first choice. But because we're playing with the idea of Bundy's charisma and charm and how he was able to elude capture and how he attracted fans even during the trial after he was a multi-state yeah. killer... And so I just thought he would be kind of perfect for that. Yeah, we all kind of, the audience, us viewers, all became one of those teenage girls who showed up at the trial and were like, I don't know, am, <laughs> am I next? Who? <laughs> you know, like, what? <laughs> we, are, we all feel a little bit insane watching this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, good. I hope that's good. I hope that's good. There's been some criticism that we're glorifying him, and I just don't buy that at all. You know, I don't buy it either just because of the deep, deep betrayal that you feel at the end. Yeah. And I think that it's important. I think that we want to like put people into a box as like, this was a terrible crime and he did this terrible thing, so he must be portrayed as a terrible person. Yeah. And that's not what it felt like at the time that the crimes were happening. A lot of people, for good reason, gave him the benefit of the doubt. A lot of people didn't know about all the crimes that he was committing. A lot of people weren't there when yeah. it happened. And yeah. so like having the gruesome reality of that in front of us is something that we now can look back on. But at the time, like people didn't know what he was even doing with the bodies until, you know, days before he was executed. Yeah. You know, like we didn't know. You know, that is the most astute observation. Well, I just don't like propaganda. Yeah. And this was not a propaganda film. It yeah. was a film that like took you in a lot of uncomfortable emotional places. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I respected that. And like this is after coming off of watching your whole documentary and like knowing what Ted did. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, you, oh, you binged all four episodes. Oh, I did my homework. Oh, man. Wow. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you about Everyone wants to understand Ted Bundy. They want to, like, get into the mind of a killer. And Zach had to somehow find the inner psychopath in himself and portray, like, the layers of acting upon acting that Ted himself, well, Ted himself was a storyteller. Mm. And so, like, this story that you're telling is the story about a storyteller who's telling a story about himself and to the world. Like, how do you talk to Zach about being that person? Yeah, um, good question. Um, we made a couple of decisions. One is not to try to mimic uh, Ted. You know, I, I gave him a bunch of archival footage to look at, but I said, you know, you should just do your own thing. Find your own way into it, and this is not about mimicking. Um, the second thing is for both Lily... And interestingly for Lily, she was like, well, do I get my drive of archival footage? Because she saw Zach. I said, no, no, I don't want you to see anything. Mm. In fact, you, you need to be in the same space. Because she didn't know anything about Bundy. And just the most mm. top line, I said, don't Google. Interesting. Don't research. Don't look at any bad images. 
And in fact, the first time she saw bad images was the day we shot that final scene on Death Row. Oh. And shortly before the scene, I had a whole envelope of real Bundy. Um, and so just before the scene started, I was like, here, look at this. Mm-hmm. And she said that really helped her. And it was a really smart idea because uh, I wanted her to be in the headspace of somebody who's just hearing stuff but hasn't really seen anything. Right. And then the thing that I most impressed upon Zach and Lily is that they truly do love each other. Everything has to come back to this. This is a real relationship between the two of you because I felt just like you described that feeling of betrayal for the audience. I feel like the audience needs to feel that loving relationship, you know, burning off the screen so that you can invest some uh, positive emotion in them, even though intellectually it's like, why am I rooting for him escaping from prison? But I felt that was such a critical moment. That's why the choice of music and obviously when it gets to Miami, the film takes a dark turn um, and deservedly so. Yeah, I noticed that like one of the choices that you made to like give this sense of dramatic irony about where you are feeling, what loyalty and what perspective you're loyal to is you intercut like beautiful home footage of like a family having fun together with like the newscaster in the background saying these women are getting murdered, another body found. And I was wondering, how did you choose to include what sounds like real archival? Yeah, it was real archival yeah. footage, yeah. Um, well, two things. One is Lily and I went to visit the real Liz Klupfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the first time Lily has ever kind of met a living person that she's portraying. So for her, it was fascinating. For me too, but for her, it had the extra layer of this is the first time. And Liz is somebody who, you know, she lived with Ted Bundy for six years. So you can imagine that trust is an issue with her. Yeah. You, know, you got to earn trust with her, <laughs> which I believe me, I totally get. So we met her. We had to meet at a hotel. She didn't want us to know where she lived, which I understand. Fair and enough. It was a two-day trip, and as the day unfolded, I think at a certain point, we passed the first test. And and actually, I have to say, she and Lily really took a shine to each other, like legitimate, you know, just there was a nice connection there. And so at a certain point, um, she brought out these photo albums that no one has ever seen, and we certainly didn't use in the movie or in the doc series because they were private and she wanted to keep it that way. But they were like these classic 1970s photo albums, you know, the three to a page and on the other side, three to a page, mm-hmm. the plastic sleeve and the the square <laughs> photo, the Instamatic photo with the date at the... I mean, just it literally felt like I was going through my family photo album and there's, there's this three-person family at the beach going camping, going skiing, having birthday parties, mm-hmm. and it, like this happy family unit, but the guy in the picture is Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of flipped me out and just really made me realize, A, the theme of the film, that the, those closest to us can be the most evil um, and is a psychopath capable of love, which are the two driving questions of the movie. Uh, or, you know, the, the idea of including real footage and grounding it in a reality I thought was important. The other thing was the, the beats of Bundy's story are so unbelievable. I mean, who escapes prison once, let alone totally. twice? And then on their third prison break... Even somebody who's sick, you would think they would have enough presence of mind to lay low and not call attention to themselves. But the Florida killings at Kayamega was his worst. Rant. You know, one night he bludgeons four people in the sorority and then runs down the street to another residence and bludgeons another student, thinking he's left five people dead. Fortunately, it was only two people dead, but he's really seriously wounded these other women. And then he goes a few weeks later and kills 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. Yeah. 
so the beats of his story are so unbelievable that I wanted the archival footage to ground people in, in reality and say, look, this is, this is not an invention of the filmmakers. Right. This, this, this shit really happened. So that was one aspect of it as well. The other thing was the Michael Worwe script that this is based on, which was brilliantly structured. But the one thing that didn't work for me in the script, and I had to change and I had to figure out how to do this. And I think it's one of the reasons that it existed on the Hollywood blacklist for so long and people couldn't figure out a way around it, is that in the original script, it's a story of a guy named Ted and a woman named Liz, and you don't know it's Bundy. Mm. And the big reveal at the end of the movie was that, oh my God, it's Ted Bundy. I see. And even though there was a moment similar to that final scene on Death Row, I made much more of a meal out of that. Yeah. And brought it more into an authentic place because... The original script had more of a catch-me-if-you-can tone, and it was lighter. And the reveal at the end of the movie was, oh, my God, it's Ted Bundy. And the moment Zach signed on, uh, even before Zach signed on, I knew in this day and age with social media, et cetera, mm -hmm. the moment it was announced, it became an international story. So right. every, everyone going into the movie knows it's Ted Bundy. Um, so... Instead, I wanted to say, okay, it is Ted Bundy, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and let's even ground it more with reality by using archival footage, which then makes the movie about exactly what you were saying before. Show no violence and show only things that Liz would see and invest in that relationship so that you can feel that sense of betrayal at the end of the movie. Right. And yeah, it's like they're, they're co-protagonists, or at least that's like the intention. We have Ted and... Ted's on his crazy adventure, <laughs> this crazy horrifying adventure. And then Liz is back home and she has a less fun and plot-driven yeah. drama. Hers is like an internal psychological yeah. drama. Yeah, people have you know, said, oh, she's moping around the house. But she was a victim of inner conflict and how do you portray inner conflict? So, And I think Lily does an amazing job in that final scene between the two of them, which is this long eight-minute scene, I think is incredible work by both of them, so. Is it, I haven't read her memoir, but is the thing that happens, no spoilers, a thing that actually that's, happens? That's our one invention. Okay. Because in the memoir, it was a phone call, it wasn't a visit, and it was a more general conversation. But, but because I withheld the violence throughout the movie, mm -hmm. we needed to, you know, amp, yeah. amp that up so that people feel that sense of betrayal. So, right, right, right. So here's something that, is incredibly interesting for me because I've also been the subject of made-for-TV movies yeah. and countless documentaries. And I've had, you know, an actor play me. And I wonder, as a how, how, did, how did you feel about all that? Are you still processing? Or? Mm, um, I don't... Um, I think the thing that has always bothered me about it is... One, not many people have gone out of their way to actually approach me and get to know me before portraying me. Mm. Um, and it seems like everyone else is making a feast off of my flesh while mm. I'm sitting back suffering mm. the consequences. And the only one who ultimately suffers the reputational consequences is me. Correct. Um, so I have some deep resentment for the way that people have not just portrayed me, but profited off of portraying me a certain way because it's 
sensational. And not reached out to, you know. And, you know, not even, like, done the gesture. I think there have been some—there has been some incredible journalism. I think the Netflix documentary did a really great job because they actually talked to me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, um, and—but my question for you is, as a filmmaker who makes documentaries, who makes feature films— when do you feel that you are equipped to tell a true story? Hmm. Great question. And in fact, the reason that uh, I chose to do Extremely Wicked, one of the things I said to my agent is that I've been sent now, as my reputation has grown as a documentarian in the true crime space, and in that period I've been sent a lot of scripts where I look at the scripts and I say, mm, like, a thousand people could do this. Like, I, I, I need to feel like whatever I'm doing calls upon my unique set of life experiences. It's like the basic advice to a new writer is to write what you know. And for me, doing a scripted movie, I've been sent so many things. I'm like, I, this is not special for me. A lot of people could do this, but for Extremely Wicked... I don't think a lot of people could have made that film the way I made it. Mm. Um, And that's not boastful, but I was looking for something that called upon my experiences, my experiences of sitting on death row, looking through glass and having to evaluate whether you're being truthful. Not a lot of people can say they've done that. Mm -hmm. Having kind of a humanistic approach, which I think all of my films, I try to explode stereotypes and see people as three-dimensional human beings, whether... You know, Brothers Keeper was about these four smelly old farm brothers who all slept in the same bed together who the <laughs> town shunned. But I came to love these guys and, in fact, loved the gross smell of the house. I used to, <laughs> I used to look forward to it because I felt like, you know, I was seeing these people for the first time as fully realized human beings. While we were making Brothers Keeper, their house was at the end of a dirt road. And as you're driving down the dirt road, strewn about in the high grass were the detritus of many decades of impoverished living, like rusted out refrigerators and whatever, dead tires. And most people, including myself, if you don't open yourself up to people's humanity, most people would have like saw that house with a pig hanging from the tree and oh, and uh, <laughs> you, know, you would have put the, put the car in reverse and hightailed it out of there. But instead we stopped, got out, and I had an amazing lesson about acceptance of people and treating people as human beings. I like to explode stereotypes in my film. So that's one heavy metal teens who listen to Metallica must be guilty of murder. I mean, all that kind of horrible thinking. So for documentaries, I look for things where there's an opportunity to actually show that things are not as black and white as people are saying. Mm. And on the scripted side, what I'm looking for is stuff that taps into who I am as a person so that I have something to say. And I really feel like Extremely Wicked kind of tapped into like my life experiences up until that point. And that a different filmmaker with that material, I think it would have been a very different, not to say it wouldn't have been a better film, but I, I think I was uniquely suited to tell this story. Yeah, I trusted you with it. I don't know how many people were watching the trial scenes and seeing it through the perspective that I have, which is I think a lot of people might have come to those scenes thinking, oh yeah, you know, the bike mark evidence and oh yeah, the this, that, and the other. And for me, I come away from it going, well... I have a complicated relationship with those scenes because right. I know that bite mark evidence is junk science. And like, yeah. I, you that's know? One of, that's, one of, that's, great. that's one of the great ironies of the Bundy case that troubles me and why I highlighted the bite mark evidence because 
That was the first time it was ever used in a court of law. Bundy obviously is guilty, and yet the case against him was incredibly flimsy, circumstantial. Mm -hmm. The bite mark evidence was the thing that persuaded jurors, and it has been debunked as junk science. And the case against Bundy today, and this is no diss to the great work that the prosecutors did and the investigators, they brought him to justice and all that. But the case against Bundy today probably would have been acquitted. Yeah. Uh, and it's amazing you picked up on that detail. And uh, Oh, I was, <laughs> I was sitting there yeah. with it. <laughs> I was yeah, going, no, oh, that's, no. That's one of the, that's one of, that's one of the great ironies of, of the case. Yeah. And why it's important, because this is a layer that I don't expect many people other than you and Damien to get. <laughs> but uh, constitutional protections and laws are designed for the worst cases, not the best. Yeah. And even somebody like Bundy deserves to be tried and convicted on real evidence. Agreed. It's just like the death penalty. It's hard to look at a mother in the eyes and say you don't deserve to feel vengeance and you don't deserve to feel that person who took away your child doesn't deserve to die. I don't want to tell a mother that. And they can feel that way. You know, I'm not here to pass some moral argument. So I never get into the slippery slope of the moral debate about whether the state has the right to take a life or whether makes us as bad as the criminal by doing the death penalty. I can't even get to that argument because mm -hmm. the knowledge that one innocent person could be executed means you can't have that system because yeah. of human fallibility. So laws are meant for the worst cases, not the best. And, uh, you know, it is troubling that the case against Bundy was kind of weak. Yeah. You know? I mean, the movie really isn't about that. That's a layer there that you saw and a few other people will see, but... Sure. Uh, but it's one of the interesting factors of it. Yeah. And I don't think someone like Bundy could get away with it today because we actually have DNA evidence. That is true. But yeah. I, I'm, I'm saying the case against him that was presented in 1979 was weak. Was weak enough that, he, that, weak, that, yeah. that, that he, he might have been acquitted. But. You do spend a lot of time, especially in the trial scenes, um, portraying the media spectacle of it. And it seems that maybe as a media professional, that aspect of it is important to you, or at least... No, yeah. yeah. One, one of the things I was attracted to, and one of the things that um, it connects to what you were saying about your own feelings about how you've been treated, um, you know, the movie is very self-reflexively looking at the insatiable appetite for true crime that we currently are experiencing. Because mm -hmm. I am aware of the kind of hypocrisy of even what I do, which is that we're making entertainment um, out of people's misery. Yeah. And, you know, I like to think, I mean, like Wikipedia, you know, describes me as a true crime pioneer. Now, I like the pioneer part. The true crime makes me wince a little bit because mm -hmm. true crime implies that you're wallowing in the misery of other people. Reveling it. Reveling. Yeah. You know, and, and that's not what I do and that's not what a lot of people do. That's not what the people who made your documentary do right. or what I did with Paradise Lost. I'd like to think that my explorations of crime have a whole social justice component to it, including getting people out of prison if we can, or shining a light on injustice or shining a light on criminal justice reform. But yet I'm a big part of why true crime is as popular as it is today. And it does cause pain to victims' families sometimes. And I'm highly aware of that hypocrisy. And to me, Bundy is the big bang of the insatiable appetite for true mm. crime that we're currently experiencing because Bundy's trial was the first nationally televised trial. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting intersection at the time of 
technology and a growing interest in Bundy's story by the time Florida started, because in 1979, just a few months before the trial started, many news stations were still shooting news on film, which meant there was no such thing as live coverage. Mm -hmm. And only around the time of Bundy's trial, this new thing called electronic news gathering and satellite technology came into existence. And the desire to tell Bundy's story because of his charisma caused everyone to say, sure, let's bring cameras in the courtroom Mm -hmm. and let's turn this into a live television event for Americans. And it's the first time Americans saw serial murder as a live television event. And you can trace that line right to his execution 10 years later when mobile satellite trucks, which are now ubiquitous at every crime scene, that technology was first starting to happen. So his execution becomes yet another live television event. And then you can trace that line seven years later to the O.J. Simpson trial, which also had the intersection of the 24-hour news cycle that was now happening and the proliferation of cable stations and boom, This is where we are today, but Bundy kicked it all off. And so as somebody who participates in this genre, I kind of want to, as I say, self-reflexively look back. And, you know, I'm highly aware of the hypocrisy because, God forbid, there was ever a tragedy in my life Mm -hmm. and documentarians showed up. I don't think I'd let them in. And I'm constantly aware of that hypocrisy that I am trying to convince people to give me access to their story, and I don't think I'd do it in return. Hmm. Um, so, well, speaking as someone who never had a choice in the matter, um, you know, I didn't get to choose whether or not people were telling my story. They yeah. were, they were telling it no matter what. Yeah. And I think that we're also in an age where everyone has access to everyone's stories if we want to. Yeah. And so at this point, it's not even a matter of, do we decide if we're going to be telling these stories? It's how do we tell these stories and do them yeah. justice? Yeah, you which, know? Is why, which is why the minority of people who look at the trailer, or which I had nothing to do with, and I agree the trailer, <laughs> mis- I, I agree the trailer misrepresents the movie, and I'm not a trailer guy. I didn't make it. I'm a filmmaker. But you know, people should understand and look at my track record and look at the movie before they start saying, oh, you're glorifying Bundy. I mean, that is the... That is such a, somebody who has spent 25 years in the criminal justice system, not just through films. I mean, I spent plenty of time advocating for criminal justice reform on the boards of various organizations and it has nothing to do with film. So mm-hmm. that's the problem with a lot of this knee-jerk criticism or even storytelling, as you were saying. Like, if you're going to make a comment about something, take four minutes, Google my name, <laughs> see the things I've done before you criticize because... Mm-hmm. Give me the benefit of the doubt. I've gotten people out of prison. I've helped change laws. I've, you know, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying, like, before you criticize and say, oh, you're glorifying Ted Bundy, take a look at my track record. There's a deeper meaning to the film that's very important for people to hear, and it's the antithesis of glorification. Right. It's refreshing to talk to someone who sees the world and the justice system with the same nuance I do, with a commitment to empathy, knowing it's the only real path to genuine understanding, that it's often a very difficult and uncomfortable path. The film, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile, takes you into that uncomfortable space. Not to revel in the atrocity, but to help us confront our own relationship with the spectacle of true crime as entertainment. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe to The Truth About True Crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And stay tuned for the next season, where I'll be digging into the upcoming Sundance true crime docuseries, Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo.